Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What does it mean to be a man? What is manliness? What is toxic masculinity? The term toxic masculinity has become part of the public consciousness. But I think there's an allergy collectively that people have to that framing, which I can understand, because I think then people extrapolate it to mean, you know, that it's always toxic to be a man, which of course isn't true at all. Okay, so we'll dig deeper into the complexities of that. But I mean, we can at least all agree that if an animal has a penis, then that means it's male, right? Now we know that there are females of species that are the ones with the large and stout copulatory organ that they use to transmit gametes. So it's not even specific in terms of the sex of the organism. Okay, so there is a lot to the male animal. And if we get it right, there will be more nuances to manhood and the rest of the human species. I'm Kyone Wolf. Find out how next on Audacious after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, we're exploring the idea of toxic masculinity from a few different perspectives. Later, you'll hear from a journalist who writes how a certain body part on a man signals dominance and power, but it's not always that way throughout nature. And yes, we are definitely talking about the penis. But first, Thomas Page McBee is a journalist and author who's trans. He explored masculinity in his own life as he began taking testosterone. And you'll hear some of his biggest realizations about men and violence when he trained to be the first trans man to box at Madison Square Garden. To get started, I asked him to define toxic masculinity. I think it's a term that, you know, in the years since I've been writing about this and and talking to sociologists and developmental psychologists and so on, the term toxic masculinity has become part of the public consciousness. And, And it's not actually the term they use. They use hegemonic masculinity. And then the idea of being toxic is sort of a like, I mean, it's not wrong in the sense that there's a lot of framings around the way we socialize men and boys that can then lead to behaviors that are harmful to ourselves and others. Um, So from that perspective, like, yes, they can be toxic, but I think there's an allergy collectively that people have to that framing, which I can, I can understand, Um, you know, because I think then people extrapolate it to, to mean, you know, that it's always toxic to be a man, which of course isn't true at all. So just to take a step back and sort of explain like how I came to even think about it, you know, when I, I'm trans and when I transitioned medically when I was 30 years old, so this was back in 2011, as someone who was transitioning, I was thinking about being a man a lot. And I was of course very happy in my body and being a man, you know, physically, because that's what really felt in alignment for me. But I'm also a person who'd lived in the world and experienced men in all kinds of ways, positive and negative. And I was troubled by a lot of like the expectations I experienced sort of just walking around in the world, you know, about what being a man seemed to mean to other people. Things like, you know, good, quote unquote, and bad. So like good for me, like privilege, Um, you know, like I was suddenly imbued with all kinds of privileges, especially at work. And then negative for me and others in the sense that my body became weaponized really quickly. And I was very just sort of conscious, even walking down the street, that I was a threat to people. So I feel like in a very personal way, 
I got this education in the way in which we expect men to behave. And I mean, everybody expects men to behave. And I think that obviously we are now having a way of talking about that and we're calling it toxic masculinity, but there's many ways to be a man. When we say that, we just mean certain kind of socialized behavior, certain ways we train boys to think about what being a man means or men to think about what being a man means. And then we sociologists call it the man box. So we like sort of put boys and men in this box. And if you walk into a classroom with like 10 year old boys, which many sociologists and after school programs and that sort of thing have done this, and they just draw a box on the board and they say, this is the man box, what goes inside it? 10 year old boys will tell you exactly what goes inside it. And you know what goes inside it, you know, being brave, being strong, uh, being stoic, not showing your emotions, all of those things, being aggressive. And then what goes outside of it, anything that you might call, quote, feminine, which has a lot to do with basic humanity, like (laughs) emotional intelligence, empathy, like being in touch with one's feelings. And to be really clear, when I when I was researching all of this, like I talked to developmental psychologists who told me there's no there is no innate relationship between male genitalia or testosterone, which men and women both have and emotional realities. This is something we teach boys that that to be a man, it means to not be in connection with that emotional self. And of course, the harm that comes from the constant policing of those borders is that boys learn to divorce themselves from their own humanity. And that's and how they treat themselves and others. So my definition of toxic masculinity is that is that divorcing from one's own humanity in the effort to sort of uphold this idea of being a man that is a constructed idea and that construction is based entirely on the idea of dominance and being like at the top of the pyramid. So that leads to the like, patriarchy, you know? So again, none of this is actually about being a man, but it's about upholding this very specific cultural script that exists in patriarchy specifically about what being a man means. I wonder to what degree insecurity is at the heart of toxic masculinity. Are, do you think that the two are interchangeable? Like, is there such thing as toxic masculinity without insecurity? I think shame is at the heart of toxic masculinity. And shame is also at the root of all violence. That's what James Gilligan, the prison psychologist says, you know, he, he studied male prisoners and, and pretty much every behavior that, that incites violence is there, that every, or sort of every person who's reacting in violence was coming from a place of feeling shame first. And you see that more with men than women. Men are more likely to commit acts of violence. They're more likely to murder or be murdered to harm others in physical ways. And and so when you talk about what the man box is, it's a way of policing using shame, masculinity broadly. So I think that yes, it's insecurity, but it's even deeper. Insecurity is something that we all feel, but shame, and of course shame is something we can all feel sadly, but shame has no purpose. Like guilt has a purpose, but shame doesn't. You know, shame is I am bad. Something's wrong with me. I've failed as a human being. And so when you design a way of thinking about gender, or you design a performance of gender entirely around avoiding feeling shame or, you know, I mean, look at our president. That's a person who lives in constant shame. Clearly, he can't even admit he's sick when he's clearly sick and we all know it. There's something about that kind of denial of like basic humanity that shame that shame's about and the need to constantly police those borders using shame specifically that I think is it's even deeper than insecurity, you know, because it's allowing someone else to tell you that you failed at being you. Your book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man is full of questions. The the central one being, why do men fight? Why did you ask, why do men fight? When I would ask other people how they thought about these sort of expectations of manhood, 
there were usually one of two answers that other guys anyway would give me. And, and one would be either, you know, well, guys are just like that. Fundamentally, there's something innate about being a man and it's just X or Y and just accept it. Or you're not that kind of guy. Don't worry about it. You can be different who knows why men do what they do, but you don't have to make those same decisions. So I think (laughs) that was really profoundly unsatisfying. And I could feel myself becoming this kind of person, you know, and I was like a professional adult and getting into these street fights, like not necessarily like, you know, coming to blows and big, you know, big violent attacks, but just like these moments with other men in the street that just felt so strange to me. And I couldn't figure out why that was happening, but it felt like the symbol of everything else that was happening. So so that for me, it was more just like, that was the breaking point, like getting into, I got into a very protracted argument with this man on the street and it was violent and strange. And the truth was like, I wanted to be in it. I wanted to be having this confrontation. I was mad. I was so mad and confused about what was happening. And I didn't feel like I had any of the answers I was seeking. I didn't feel like myself. And I just didn't know how to be in the world anymore, the way I was behaving, you know? And so when that happened and I knew there wasn't an easy, obvious solution, I felt like maybe the solution could be literally asking the question because I'm a reporter. So I knew how to do that. You know, if I could just ask somebody <clears throat> and really try to answer that question, why men fight? Why do men fight? Then I thought it would lead me to the other questions that I had. And if I could just collect the most basic questions I had about being a man, eight or nine of them, and truly report them out. I thought maybe I would get some actual answers. And so that's why I asked that question. But I also had this like instinct to viscerally experience the answer to that question. So <laughs> I uh, pitched to my bosses this idea of like joining a, a boxing outfit and, and learning how to fight in order to sort of to be around other guys who were doing the same thing. And I was especially interested in like white collar fighting because that was like at the start of that. And I wanted to understand why do men, men like me who have no reason to do this, why are they doing this? Like they don't need to risk their bodies. There's not an economic reason, you know? So, so why are we, why? And I really wanted to ask that question, but in a way that was, I hope non-judgmental because I truly wanted to really get a sense of, of why we were all there and what drives men towards violence. And is there any way violence can be safe? Like, can you have a relationship to, to not just what your masculinity, but to other men and to, you know, can you be in, in sort of a, safer container to explore these questions. So I was interested in boxing as a way to, to see. And also as I went through my training, which was like six months long uh, before my fight, I really tried to just document every single question I had that came up in that process and report that out too. Yeah. Each uh, chapter is a question. Uh, One of them was, am I sexist? Yes, I was sexist. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) The end. It's over. (laughs) I mean, kind of in a way. I mean, it it was sort of almost that simple, but I, it was very hard to come to that conclusion for me because I was raised by a single mom. I was raised feminist. I, um, my background is queer. I have come from a lesbian community. I, I had always seen myself as a, you know, an ally to women and, even though my, my own experience was more androgynous, I always saw myself as, you would probably call it non-binary now, we didn't have that language then, but I saw myself as always not fitting within the gender roles from the female perspective. I really connected to women and to equality from, you know, gender equality from the very beginning of my consciousness. So I, I was shocked to find out that I was sexist. And the way it came about was that when I was training, I was training with this, this woman who'd been training way longer than me and we were sort of like paired together from the beginning with our coach and and he really wanted us to like fight to spar which physically made total sense like she i had literally a week of training 
and she had a year of training and we were basically the same size. Like, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a big guy. So we were about the same size. It made sense, but within the context of the gym and being in front of all these other men, I mean, there's like all kinds of norms about understandably about not hitting women if you're a man and, and there are ways that you can be in the ring with a woman, but you're not supposed to engage in a real sparring situation. And she really wanted to spar me because she wanted me to get better. And that was really hard because it meant if I sparred her, I had to be in front of all of these guys doing this thing that men don't do, which is a real threat to a lot of men's masculinities, you know? And so sort of simultaneously while that was happening, I was at work, you know, with my bosses and my other, other reporters, like trying to talk through the story and trying to like think about the questions I had for the story. And I sort of simultaneously realized that there are a lot of ways I was behaving at work that were also maybe a little bit sketchy. Like I didn't think so until I sort of, I, I took a test about implicit bias and I realized like there are many ways I was behaving in with my colleagues and at meetings and so on that were, were really just taking the way I'd been socialized before and just transplanting it onto my current body and life. So like if I was talking to other folks in a meeting and it was me and, and mostly women, I noticed that if we were all sort of talking at once, which is a kind of normal thing to have happen, if it's all women, if I spoke, it's like everybody would just stop talking. And that happened all the time. And I thought, wow, I'm just so smart and great. And people think I'm so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't register what was really happening and, until I started to register. And then I started really actually tracking like, well, and what, how often do I interrupt women versus how often do I interrupt men? how fast do I respond to emails if they're from my female colleagues versus my male colleagues? And I just started paying attention to all of it because I thought I was immune. And then as I was doing this reporting, I, I talked to you know folks at Stanford who measure all this and, and they were basically like, everybody has this bias. That's what, of course. And that's why I mean, yes, of course I'm sexist. Like, or I, I've, I'm working on my internalized sexism because we all are, of course we are. You wrote in your book about the Danish idea of masculinity, which is understood as not being a boy versus the American understanding of it being more like not being a woman. That if feminine is the opposite of manly, then traditionally, quote, feminine traits seen in boys is bad. Yeah. And that's important because if being a man means not being a woman, and we are so obsessed with policing what being a man means in this culture, then anything that that we assign to being feminine, you know, you have to eradicate from yourself because then otherwise you're vulnerable to being told you're not a real man, which is also a construct that we have in this culture. And we tend to not use about women. You also did some research into testosterone and understanding testosterone. Some who maybe haven't done any research at all may instinctively say, well, the more testosterone you have, the more aggressive you are. But that's not quite right. No, it's not. It's fascinating. So this, the question of testosterone was what was sort of, for me, the, it was at the heart of my biggest fears when I was going into this project of trying to ask these questions, because I think what I was afraid I would find would be that that would be just the truth. Like you just take this hormone and you become a different person. And uh, that the way you become different are all the things we associate with testosterone, aggression, um, violence, lack of sensitivity, I mean, obviously there's, there's positive sides to these things I'm naming, like being assertive and that sort of thing. But, but I was pretty worried that I would just find out that it was actually this magical elixir that sort of turned you into a, a person who could be harmful just by taking it somehow. I talked to Robert Sapolsky, who's like a neurobiologist out of Stanford. And, and he told me that that's the biggest myth about testosterone, that it causes aggression. 
that that's not actually true at all, that they've done economic games like studies where the way you win the game is by being cooperative and they've measured the testosterone levels of the men in the games and the men with the highest testosterone levels are the most cooperative and they win the games. And the reason that's true is because testosterone causes status seeking, Sapolsky told me. Status is like whatever we give status to in this culture. So if cooperation is the highest possible status, then men will be very cooperative because they want to to attain that status, which is fascinating. Yeah. And then what's interesting about those studies is that he told me that if they give men a placebo and tell them it's testosterone, like a shot of testosterone, those men act like total in the same games. They were given a placebo. There was nothing actually in the drug. Like there was no testosterone given to them, but they are so sure that testosterone makes you aggressive that they behave aggressively. I mean, there's an incredible amount of interesting research about testosterone. And there's an amazing book called The Un- Testosterone, the Unauthorized Biography uh, by these two social scientists who like really deeply investigate the like way we have made testosterone into this, this thing that supposedly does so many different things that it doesn't do. It just doesn't. And of course, women have testosterone. Like this idea that it's a male sex hormone that only affects men and only causes aggressive behavior is literally a myth. It it is absolutely not true. But we have so deeply, we've been so deeply invested, I think, in the idea that men are innately slaves to the patriarchy in this particular way. (laughs) And they do all these things for that reason. And that it's something in our blood or bodies or hormones. And it's just, it's just a false it is truly a false idea, which is kind of amazing to think about. So if we reward aggression with status, does it surprise you in any way, shape or form that the president often embodies this bullying kind of persona? You surprised? No, because that's what he ran on. I mean, literally, that's exactly what he I mean, of course, yes. But there there have been other presidents who've been less uh, embodying of this particular uber version of you know it's like a hyper masculinity it's like a hyper hegemonic masculinity it's like the idea that masculinity is domination is clearly his guiding principle i mean i'm not saying that to be controversial i think that's evident in literally everything he does and that's what he says and how he speaks and not wearing a mask because he's you know masks are weak or whatever and it's also reflective of the people who filled in the bubble next to his name that that was not a disqualifying feature. That's true. I, I think there's like a way that all of these, like understanding how these things interact with like white supremacy specifically is really important because being a man and even being a white man is not at all correlated with white supremacy, but having a certain kind of masculinity that's about upholding the structure we currently live in, which is a structure of white supremacy and patriarchy. Those things are completely connected. So if you look at the sort of, I think of it as like a pyramid scheme of masculinity in our in our culture, in American culture, and white masculinity in particular, where a certain kind of guy is at the top, literally, and then we all, all of the men around, you know, are supposed to like be real men and uphold this, this pyramid so that the guy at the very top can have as much power as he possibly wants. And then the sacrifice that men make, and I think this is really important, that the, the sacrifice that men who believe in this you know, who have been encultured into this mandate, the sacrifice is that you don't get to be a human being. I mean, you harm other people, obviously, many other people, you harm the environment. Uh, men are much less likely, men of this stripe especially, are much less likely to recycle, to, to care about environmental issues. I mean, global warming is being accelerated literally by this behavior, but you harm yourself 
like really you don't get to uh, experience real intimacy or connection to other people. Um, you know, when your whole life is about domination and then about serving the person at the top, who's the most dominant, like you're not, there's very little about that life experience. That's not about scarcity and power and, and keeping that kind of status at all costs. And the, the costs are literally everyone around you. Then if you think about it, that means the cost is you because we're social animals. So what's the point? That's, I mean, so yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's very connected to Trump, but I don't think it's like, I mean, he's, he's sort of a helpful example. Uh, he's like clearly a figurehead on some level, but I, I also think that, you know, you could look around in every industry and in, you could look around your own neighborhood and find many examples, probably most people of men who embody similar characteristics. These are deeply encultured. And I think eradicating them is going to take a lot of like awareness and thought. Do you think we are at the cusp of a wave of change in terms of how we express masculinity and, and gender overall? Or do you think we have like a really long way to go? Because it seems like masculinity and femininity and how we interpret these two things and everything in between, that they are in everything. For example... My wife and I have two cats. By the way, we just got married. Calling her my wife is awesome. <laughs> Good cats. We have two. Thank you. We have two cats, a boy cat and a girl cat, as far as we know. And when I <laughs> until they talk tell you otherwise. To, <laughs> until they say otherwise. Ah. But when I talk to the girl cat, this is what I say. Oh, you're just the cutest little baby. You're just the sweetest little, smallest, tiniest thing. And when I talk to the boy cat, it's like, Who's the biggest, most handsome, strongest boy, man, face? Uh And they're about the same size. I mean, (laughs) they're not totally different. That is how deep it goes in me. And that's just talking to my cats. So I wonder, with all that, where do you think we are in terms of our evolution to a more equitable, informed, thoughtful species of human when it comes to how we understand gender? The problem isn't gender. The problem is the ways we are assigning power and constricting people based on gender identity or giving people more based on gender identity. You know, it's it's the it's the dynamics, it's not the expression. The expression is what it is. We all have gender expression. And you know, with masculinity stuff, every researcher I talk to always emphasizes that. It's like step one is stop like can we stop saying masculinity and say masculinities? Can we allow for an expansive understanding of what being a man means and, and do it in a way that we're not suggesting that that means diluting it to beyond recognition, which is the fear. I think part of why actually it's so hard to bring men into the conversation is because if you say, we all have a gender, you're it's all political and you're the one at the top stop having so much privilege and like give your privilege away. It's like, well, that's not that, that's not that enticing of an offer, <laughs> you know? Which, Where's the incentive there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like appealing to people's like just sense of doing the right thing, you know, it's complicated. And if you're not having that lived experience, it's hard to even understand, I think, what people are talking about. But if you can understand you have a gender and you have a story that you've inherited about what your gender means, or if you've, you know, maybe if you're transitioned, you have a new story you've inherited about what gender means, but we all are working in these gender narratives. And it's truly about realizing that individually we have the opportunity to expand these definitions and we can do it in so many ways, like in how we talk to kids and how we negotiate with our partners about things. It's like, there's so many moments in our lives. It doesn't have to be on some big stage and it, it doesn't have to be some big transgressive way that you express your gender identity or anything. It, it's truly about realizing that gender exists and you embody it. And also you always have an opportunity to show people 
a new way to be that identity by even making very small different decisions. You clearly have a sense of urgency to understand the world better, to understand yourself better, to be a better human being. And when people read your books, they'll start getting these clues as to what it looks like when you make that effort and what it sounds like to improve. What would you say to try to ignite that same kind of sense of urgency when we are one out of almost 8 billion people on the planet and there's something so huge such as the patriarchy and our understanding of gender, like it all seems so big. Mm -hmm. And there may be people listening to this who are like, what what am I supposed to do? Or worse, they don't think they're part of the problem. And by they, I mean any of us, regardless of our gender expression. So what would you say to ignite that urgency in your fellow humans? I think that the urgency is about, of course, our fellow human beings, because that's part of being a person. But I also think that it's in your self-interest because you're getting harmed if you, those things are not happening. Even if you're at the top of the pyramid, if to stay up there, you've had to totally disavow everything about being a person, and this is your one life, I mean, that's the urgency. It's the one life you have. Is that how you want to spend it, really? Like, we're the link in the chain. I mean, that's the other reason. Like, if you can think at all a little bit beyond your own lifetime, it's like, whatever we, whatever we do now will really change the course of everything else that happens. And sure, you know, I'm one person, you're one person. I don't know how many people we're talking to in this moment, but like everybody has that kind of effect, you know, that magnifying effect. And you never know who's listening or thinking about the things you're talking about. You never know like who's going to be the next person who has some sort of incredible power to actually do something differently, you know? And of course we all have the next generation that literally has to save the planet, that we're responsible whether or not we have children for raising. <laughs> so, I mean, I think all of that's urgent. It's all urgent. We're, we're not individuals just living our own lives completely separate from each other. We are part of some much bigger story and we all, we all know that. We just need to remember it. Well, Thomas Page McBee, thank you for talking to me. It was wonderful talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thomas is a journalist and the author of Man Alive, a true story of violence, forgiveness, and becoming a man. An Amateur, a true story about what makes a man. Check him out at thomaspagemcbee.com. Next up. But now we know that there are females of species that are the ones with the large and stout copulatory organ that they use to transmit gametes. What can the rest of the animal kingdom teach us about what it means and doesn't mean to be male? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about masculinity, the patriarchy, and now penises, and what they do and don't have to say about what it means to be male. Emily Willingham is the author of Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis, and that's fallacy with a PH. On first glance, this book is about, well, various animal penises, but as you'll hear, the diversity of penises attached to animals in this world tells us a lot about the human penis and its role in defining what she calls impossible masculinity. Emily gets our conversation started just as she begins her book. 
with the story of her first experience with a penis. And a warning, this story and this segment includes conversations about sex and sexual assault, and it contains some strong language. That was a summertime encounter at my grandmother's house. Um, she had a swimming pool. She was in a wheelchair. She had multiple sclerosis. And so she um, had paralysis from the waist down as a result of that. But she would sit with a cordless phone while my brother and I would swim. And she had a gardener, which sounds kind of schmancy, but it really wasn't <laughs> as schmancy as it sounds. A fellow there whom I call Eddie in the book, who was clipping things behind her. There was a big row of bamboo and legustrums and things like that behind her. And there was a pool house um, just to her right where we kept inner tubes and stuff where we could get those and go play with them. And so I went in at one point to get one of these inner tubes. And I should clarify that at the time I was very prepubescent. I was quite young. Um, there was a window at the back of the pool house that was shaded by a legustrum. And I was in there and I heard this hiss sound. And I looked to the right, and this guy, Eddie, was standing there, and he had taken his pants down and had his penis out. And it wasn't until much, much later I realized that this was what he was doing, but he was masturbating. And he was gesturing to me and kind of leering, and I just took off out of there and jumped into the water and stayed in over my head for as long as I could. And I surfaced, and I do not know exactly how much time this was. It seemed like hours. It was probably at least an hour or two he kept doing this behind my grandmother and the entire time I was just trying to process how I would keep my brother safe and not endanger my grandmother. What would I do that would be discreet enough? This guy wouldn't notice and harm us because he was being very threatening behind her wielding a very large pair of shears, gardening shears and doing it in a way he knew he had some power there and he knew what he was doing. <laughs> I had a very strong sense that he knew that he was basically kind of terrorizing me. And my father came to pick us up and was standing with his back to the pool house. And this guy got on top of the roof of the pool house under a very tall little guy was hanging over it and took his penis out again behind my father. And I remember sitting there just staring at my dad just thinking, turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around. While this guy was doing that, my dad didn't. And when we got home, I immediately told my mother what had happened. The upshot of it was that he did eventually, he confessed. And he did, he, I was told that he went to, I'm assuming, state prison um, for a few years, is what I was told. And the point of that story was this. When I was being interviewed about this by the district attorney, and there was not any focus that I can recall on sort of the mental state that he created with the fact that he terrorized me personally for as long as he did during that afternoon and what his intention was with that in particular. And everything was just kind of reduced to the fact that he had taken out this penis. And that was the very big deal to everyone. Whereas to me, it was that whole process of trying to figure out how to do something about it without endangering the people I loved. And this centering of the penis is a recurring theme in your book from the very beginning to the very end. Yes, it is. And it's a bit of a Trojan horse because, as you may have noticed, the center chapter of the book is actually about vaginas. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, so I do, in fact, in the book, center vaginas very explicitly. But yes, it is about decentering the penis. And that's one of the lessons that the animal kingdom has to teach us about them. 
Emily's personal trauma became the catalyst for her research on animal penises and this idea of decentering that organ in our culture. And here's where it gets weird or interesting, depending on who you are, because all penises are not the same, not even close. So I asked her to first define penis. Yeah. So there are lots of ways to define a penis. I used to lecture about this. I was a biology professor and I would say that, you know, it's a it's a tube-like structure that transmits gametes, which in a lot of cases remains true, but there's so much more. Also across different organisms, different groups of organisms, researchers have given them all kinds of different names. None of them sound the same or give the same impression of what they might do. Um, ligula, fallopase, uh, there's always a penis, there's a, a dagus. All kinds of names. And so in the book, I decided that instead of wrestling with all of these different names over and over again, I would call it all by one name that implied something that you insert and transmit gametes. And the name I chose was intramittum, and the plural is intramitta, and those are neutral terms. And I had a reason for that because it turns out you may think that one of the uses of a penis is that it's on a male organism and transmits gametes. But now we know that there are females of species that are the ones with the large and stout copulatory organ that they use to transmit gametes. So it's not even specific in terms of the sex of the organism. Will you talk about the damselfly and dragonfly species and how they compete? The males tend to have these really armatured, as they call them, penises. They have, you know, spikes and curves and spades and scrapers and all kinds of things on them that gives them some kind of a potentially adaptive advantage in competition with these other males. And in the case of these animals, these things may very well, they look like hooks, um, may very well operate as sort of sperm scrapers so that if they mate with a female after another male has been there, they can kind of remove what the first male left behind and make their own deposit. Um, so it's just competition right there on the ground where copulation is taking place. Let's move on to the seed beetle. No. <laughs> oh. I love the seed beetle. <laughs> I could tell. Could you really come through? No, I made the seed beetle a character in the book because they're very closely researched when it comes to copulation. What happens because they have these kind of bananas intermittent. They're, um, the genitalia on the male side has all these spikes and there's a hook and some other stuff on the, what they insert into the female. And it does actually leave behind a wound. It leaves these little scars. Actually, it leaves a wound that then becomes scars, little V-shaped scars on her internal ducts. And so you would think, well, my God, this is harming her. That can't be helpful, right? But they have done some studies that suggest that females who are harmed and then go back and mate again because seed beetles do this, they tend to have more offspring than females who don't sustain this harm, which sounds kind of baffling and also a hell of a trade-off, but that is the trade-off. And so what it turns out may be happening is that the semen that's ejaculated during this process may make entry through some of these wounds. And although we probably don't think about semen as a snack, it does get widely used as one. Um, in the animal kingdom because it has a lot of nutrients in it. And those are the nutrients that are used to build animals just as much as anything else. And so she may benefit from it in those terms, which is why she may be able to have more offspring. The seed beetle, worth looking at their genitalia if people get a chance. Web extra. 
Um. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So talking about violence, one thing that stuck out in this um, chapter was the concept of rape and the human penis. And you you make an interesting argument that in terms of sexual assault, the human penis is contrary to some suspiciously demented standpoints that it is not built for violence. When it comes to the holy wow spectrum of penises, we're not very high up there or you know, not very far down on the wow end of things. And the pattern that you see across the animal kingdom is that the less adorned a penis is, the less that it has like the hooks or the scrapers or the spikes or any of those things, then the, kind of the more consensual the sexual process is and the less tension there is um, during the copulation. Our penises don't have mo- any of these things. In fact, we don't even have spines on our penises that some other primates have. We don't have a bone in our penis that a lot of other primates have. We have actually gone down the road of losing adornments <laughs> in our species. And that implies that we tend to have more consensual experiences with copulation and that there is an expectation that you will check some boxes before you reach that point of intimacy. Okay, chapter five. Now we're getting some female control. And you talk about the power and choice, not that the penis has over mating, but that the female has and how some have had more say in their sexual evolution than they've gotten credit for. So what is it? about ducks. So everybody talks about ducks all the time. They say, oh my gosh, ducks. And the ballistic penis comes out and they have what looks like forced copulation with the females, um, which I think it probably is. We didn't know what was happening on the female side of things until 2005 when um, Patricia Brennan, who is a professor at Mount Holyoke, was doing dissections on male ducks and looking at the vagina only at the top of the vagina of the females, because that's what they were looking to see what happened to the sperm at the end of the vagina. And she was like, you know, what about the rest of the vagina? What's going on in here? And so she did take a look and she was one of the first people and certainly the first person to publish about it to look at this. And she found that the vagina of female ducks who are subjected to this sort of ballistic corkscrew penis from the males themselves are corkscrewed in the opposite direction. They also can have cul-de-sacs where the sperm ends up going nowhere and just a little, some little tricks in there, some bells and whistles that give them a little bit of control over this forced copulation from the male. Normally, you would think that at least the male would gain some advantage from this rather than going through steps of intimacy and having a more consensual copulation with the female. But it doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to favor the males to do this. And so it kind of just comes across like ducks are great big jerks and they're just kind of aggressive in general. And that's what's going on. I would like to say six words that I never thought I'd say. Tell me about tick oral sex. There is an entomologist, William Everhart, whose work has been pretty crucial to anything that we understand about, especially the female side of the equation and copulation. And one of the things that he wrote in his groundbreaking book from 1985 about this was that there's definitely a mating step among some ticks where the male will move, move his mouth parts around in the female genital opening as sort of a yeah, it's like we would interpret that as foreplay, but it's some kind of a priming before the actual act takes place. The more you know. Yeah, the more maybe you didn't want to know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
Right. I know. Is there like a chime for that? <laughs> Ding. Yeah. <laughs> that was Emily Willingham, author of Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. After the break, we turn to humans and explore not only where some traditions of masculinity started, but how we can change them for the future. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. We're back with Emily Willingham, journalist and author of Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. We've been talking about how we human beings focus so intently on this part of the body that we fail to take into consideration the human being attached to it and the human beings that come in contact with it. And a note, this segment includes conversations about sex and sexual assault, and it contains some strong language. I asked Emily about the penultimate chapter of her book titled From Penis-Free to Blurred Boundaries. There are, of course, human beings who are not born male or female, and the ways we treat people in between these binaries have massive consequences for them and us. Back in the middle of the 20th century, some researchers noticed that in the Dominican Republic and surrounding, noticed that there were clusters of children who were being born and they were raised as girls. But then at the time of puberty, they went through a process that resulted in traits that we associate with the presence of androgen hormones like testosterone or dihydrotestosterone. And this included having broad shoulders, growing hair on their face and chest, and then developing a penis. But one of the things that researchers looking at these groups of people noticed was that because this was relatively common in these areas where they had discovered and covered it, they didn't really discover it, the people there had kind of taken this attitude of accepting it and accommodating it, which led to, I think, probably less stress for the children who were born, raised as girls, and then having this transition to these more things that we associate with being male. And it was just a really good example of, first of all, this continuum of even anatomically what is representative in humans in terms of genitalia, and also this continuum of how we can react to people who don't fit this binary that's been forced on us socioculturally forever. We do like our binaries, but they're not biologically accurate. You say it's time we decenter the human penis and centered another organ, and instead the human brain. How did this centering of the phallus start? There's certainly a field of thought that it started to, well, there was the rise of the phallus accompanying the rise of agriculture. And as we moved towards having sort of larger areas of land that we wanted to protect, where we had crops to protect, which is associated, right, with fertility and growth and that kind of stuff, we started to take this anatomical feature that we could clearly associate with these things, at least in some cultures, and use that as like a sort of aspirational thing, as a guardian and all this other kind of stuff. And so you start to see that, like one of the oldest examples um, I can think of is the Egyptian god Min, who's depicted holding a flail, which is what you use, right, for harvest, and then also depicted always with an erect penis that is parallel to the ground. And those two things are combined together in this God whose plant, by the way, was lettuce. 
because this kind well, and I think you're like lettuce, because I guess people think of iceberg, but this is a lettuce. It's kind of got a phallic shape to it. Um, it grows like in sort of a phallic type shape. And when you break it open, a white fluid comes out of it. And so these associations are really powerful. But over time, it sort of seems like in a lot of cultures, we got rid of the body part, not the body part, we got rid of the body, right? That portion of the human and just left behind the penis and reduced everything to just a spouse that was like, you know, going to dominate and terrorize and protect and all these other things. Um, what's your beef with Freud? My beef with Freud. I don't have necessarily a beef with Freud, <laughs> with Freud specifically, but I might have a beef with the way these people wrote or used what he said and wrote about him. There's a whole literature of analysts publishing case descriptions, things like that, in which they attribute to their clients, to their patients, this desire to be a phallus or the desire to make the analyst their phallus. And then the analyst starts to think, well, maybe I want to make my patient my phallus and everything is a phallus. There's one especially horrible, horrible paper. The analyst is talking with some women whose children may be trans and the analyst is blaming these women for quote unquote making their children this way by treating these children when they were infants as their they the woman's phallus and it's called phallus girls or something like that where even the most just loving maternal behavior in this person's eyes is translated into you're treating your infant like a penis <laughs> it's really horrible stuff at the end of this book you mention a story that kind of beautifully ties into the story you tell at the very beginning about a horrific event that took place in a Ukrainian town that, as you write, involves all the factors that give the human penis its negative contours today. What happened? Yeah, this is a terrible story, so I do think probably a content warning is in order. Um, there was a couple, they were dining out a short distance from where they live. The woman left early to walk home and on her way home, she was waylaid by a man named Dimitri who pulled her into a bush and began raping her. A few minutes later, the husband who had left the party came along. He heard sounds from the bushes that he found to be alarming. He investigated and he found this man not only with, in the process of raping his wife, but also choking her. And the husband acquired a Swiss army knife somehow and relieved the rapist of his penis. He cut his penis off. The aftermath of that was what I thought was kind of most telling. The concern both among the people there and the immediate um, aftermath of the event and in the news stories was all about this man's loss of his penis and would he be able to have it reattached you know, what would happen and what would his outcomes be and all these other things in the moment. Nobody, they called an ambulance for him, but they didn't call an ambulance for the woman who was attacked. And her mother had to be the one who ended up taking care of her because nobody else was to do, even seemed to be paying attention to it. There was a threat, at least at the time, that the husband who had cut off this man's penis would actually get more jail time than the man who was committing the rape. And nobody seemed to really be very focused on the fact that he was trying to possibly take this woman's life because he was choking her with both hands at the time that they were discovered. And the news reports in the end ended up erasing anything that really had to do with what her sequelae of this might be, what, how it might affect her in the long term. There was just no discussion of what might happen with her and certainly no discussion of sort of psychological motivations that would have led this man to do this. And so I wonder, yeah. you know, your story, this story are two of 
uncountable stories that all are on the same theme of centering the penis and blanking out everybody else. So what can I do, you know, as like as a cis woman on the planet Earth, what can any of us do, regardless of how we present, to nudge this giant penis shaped ship of our culture's obsession with this body part in a direction that brings more peace and more justice to the rest of us? What is there to do? We can try to get rid of impossible masculinity, this kind of archetype of masculinity that we seem to socioculturally make people with penises think they need to achieve. We can illustrate and live and exemplify that there are many kinds of masculinity and there's no one way to exercise that or manifest it. We can avoid doing things where we ourselves default to reducing a person to a penis. When somebody walks into a Starbucks with an AR-15 and somebody says, oh, that's small dick energy, that really just diminishes that entire episode to just this body part when obviously there's so much more going on there psychologically and so many sociocultural factors that led to that performative behavior. And I think we need to become more serious and take these things on in a lot more depth rather than these facile dismissals related to this body part. That was Emily Willingham, journalist and author of Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. Find her on Twitter at EJ Willingham. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about things like antinatalism, psychics, what it's like to be a meme, speech disfluencies, and life in recovery from drugs and alcohol, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if you've got thoughts about masculinity and gender, I really want to hear them. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>